Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. You know, if you study the Old Testament and if you love the book of Ruth, you're going to love my first guest. Jared C. Wilson has written a book called Ruth, Redemption for the Broken. And boy, the book of Ruth illustrates lots of lessons in loyalty and family and redemption and love. And if you know the story, you're going to love what uh, Jared's going to talk about in his his new book. You you think about a mother-in-law and her two daughters-in-law who have been widowed and facing pretty difficult circumstances, unsure of what to do, and things look pretty bleak. And talk about a story of love and uh, redemption, and it's powerful. And it doesn't matter what kind of problems you've had in life, the sovereign hand of the Lord can reach you, he can rescue you, and he can even revise the story of your life. We're going to learn all about that from the book of Ruth. And Hugh Welchel is going to be joining me as well in this hour. And in the second hour, David Wheaton is going to be on the program. And then Kent Dunnington, uh, one of my favorite uh, authors. He's written a book called Addiction and Virtue. He's a philosopher and theologian from Biola University. Really smart, really fun to talk to. So that's the program today. I'm very much looking forward to it. In Psalm 36, it says, Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your justice like the great deep. We'll take 60 seconds and be right back. I'm Neil Stavum, manager of Faith Radio. The month of September brought two new FM frequencies to the Faith Radio family, 89.1 in Mankato and 91.9 in Grand Marais. These are the first of several more FM stations soon to be bringing Faith Radio to additional communities in Minnesota and South Dakota. But we couldn't have moved through this open door without your support. So thank you for investing in the growing ministry of Faith Radio. You can make a gift today online at MyFaithRadio.com. Get grounded in God's Word each morning with the Faith Radio verse of the day. When you sign up, you'll receive a daily email message containing a scripture passage to uplift and encourage you. Register under the subscriptions tab at MyFaithRadio.com or text the word VERSE to 555-888 and an email link will be sent to you. Again, just text VERSE to 555-888. Stay connected to Scripture with the Faith Radio Verse of the Day. You know, I love the Book of Ruth, and if you have studied it for any amount of time, you love it too. And Jared C. Wilson is a uh, author and professor of pastoral ministry at Spurgeon College. He's written a number of books, uh, like, uh, for example, The Gospel-Driven Church. We've talked to him about that. The Imperfect Disciple, which is another outstanding book, and Supernatural Power for Everyday People. He is a favorite guest of mine, and he's here to talk about his new book, Ruth, Redemption for the Broken. Jared, welcome back. Bill, thanks so much for having me back. Yeah. It's always good to be with you. Well, I appreciate you and your work, and um, I just love the Book of Ruth. So let's uh, let's jump into it. Um, in your okay. introduction, you write that uh, Ruth has got a strong connection to your own family. I do. Did I say it has a strong connection to my own family? Well, I sort of <laughs> took some liberty there. I, I'm just trying to 
provoke you a little bit to see how you respond. <laughs> well, it's a it's a connection to everyone's family, I think, um, when you see it in the in the context of the gospel storyline. Um, yeah, that really Ruth, the family story of Ruth is yeah. actually the the family story of, of every believer. Yeah, I'm just having a little fun with you. A lot of people look at <laughs> a lot of people look at Ruth and see it as this uh, wonderful love story. Well, and it is, uh, you know, you, you know, that's one of the approaches I take in the book is to say it is a love story, but not the way you think. We're we're prone to taking the story of Ruth, and uh, as a friend of mine said recently, um, you know, the church traditions he grew up in. Ruth turned into kind of a, a a singles manual for finding a <laughs> uh, you know for finding a mate. So like yeah. how to find your Boaz kind of thing. And certainly there's some things you can apply uh, in that regard in the book, but it's it's more a, about a love story um, within the church. I think you see the relationships between uh, Ruth and Naomi, and certainly Ruth and Boaz, and so on. Uh, but in in the larger context. Uh, what it shows us is really the commitment that that God makes through Christ to the church. So it, it really is a picture, a beautiful picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church. So why was Ruth so devoted to Naomi? I mean, she she had an opportunity to, to take a very different direction and go a very different path, and she chose otherwise. Yeah, you know, in, in the text, we don't have um, a whole lot of indications. If we're being cynical, we could say the prospect of going back to her home country of Moab on her own um, was more daunting than following Naomi into a place that was not her home. Um, but that's a cynical reading. I, I think um, what we do have indication of is that she really loved Naomi and um, maybe that kind of skewers some of the modern ways, you know, we think of our of, of our mothers-in-law. But <laughs> but, uh, you know, Ruth, uh, when she makes that that vow in the beginning, to me, that's the first picture of of love there, the commitment that it's it's almost, you know, for better or for worse. Um, you know, you've got three widows um, who are there and one of them determines to go back home or to leave. And but Ruth says, no, I, I'm I'm so um, committed to this family. And we know spiritually she is um, is committed to uh, Naomi's God and to um, the one true God, Yahweh. So she says to Naomi, wherever you go, I'm going to go. And that may be that we're going to go die. But if we're going to go die, we're going to go die together. Um, so I, I think it's just a, it's a familial love. It's a spiritual love that she has, um, and it's one of the you know um, early pictures we get that helps us see the kind of relationships we have to each other in the church, right? So we're not bound together by blood, uh, except the blood of Christ. And so we say to people who have different backgrounds that we're not related to, "Hey, we're family, and where you go, I'm going to go. I'm going to I'm going to covenant with you uh, because the Lord has brought us together." Mm-hmm. I find it interesting that the book of Ruth has this powerful love relationship and that God has chosen it to be illustrated between a woman um, and a daughter-in-law. Yeah, isn't that interesting? That is so subversive. Interesting. So what what kind of surprises did you discover in your studies? Because that, again, like we just said, seems kind of unusual. Yeah, you know, well, I think, you know, some of the things that you see— as you study the the whole book, is um, Naomi at times can feel, for reading it through the modern lens, uh, 
and and sort of the the cliche or the you know the caricature of the controlling mother-in-law and that sort of thing. Um, Naomi can seem somewhat manipulative or self-interested in all the things she's sending Ruth out to do and you know telling her how to approach Boaz and all these sorts of things. Um, but that's really a cynical reading of of the text. And certainly Ruth and Naomi and Boaz are all sinners. So you know they're not you know you know they're not perfect people. They're not uh, completely void of some kind of self-interest uh, or self-inclination. And yet we really, um, I think one reason the Lord has inspired this book and preserved it to be included in the canon is that it's set against the backdrop of the book of Judges, which, um, you know, is so, uh, it, it, it is dark. It shows what happens when people do what's right in their own eyes. The result is bloodshed and perversion, um, just, you know, godlessness run amok. And Ruth is this little love story set against that that dark backdrop, and you have these characters who really do care for each other. I really, you know, when you look at it um, in in its own context and against that backdrop, Naomi really does want what's best for Ruth, and certainly she knows that she will benefit if 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 Ruth benefits. But she really does care for her daughter-in-law. She really does want her um, to be safe. She wants her to be provided for. So you really do see this, um, in, in this godly affection and care for each other, just depicted in, in, in almost every character in the book. Mm-hmm. I'm always fascinated, Jared, in the first chapter of Ruth in verse 20, don't call me Naomi, she said, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Yeah. What else yeah. do we, uh, <laughs> what do we learn from that? Well, you know, the first time I encountered that, and I preached through the book of Ruth uh, at, at my last pastorate, and it it struck me as sort of self-pitying <laughs> in the moment, you know, sort of a Debbie Downer that Naomi is, is sort of like, uh, you know, the Lord has made me very bitter. Let's let's dwell on that. Uh, but now I see it, um, you know, it's just very plain. Naomi is just sort of uh, lamenting uh, what has happened in her life and in a way, by asking to be called that, um, she is sort of embracing the sovereignty of God, having led her into this difficulty. She doesn't understand, uh, you know, why God would, uh, you know, sovereignly, you know, orchestrate this uh, this pain that she's been through and her lot in life, and yet by making that statement, she's really in effect saying, "What the Lord wants for me is." Is what I will have and 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 what I am. So uh, it's it's all the more reason for her to find some joy when uh, the prospects begin to look up, actually. And so it, it really sets up the story, um, which is a historical story. It's not uh, you know imaginative, uh, you know imaginative or or, or fiction. Mm-hmm. But in terms of storytelling, the Lord has really told a great story um, in orchestrating this historical event, and really that sets up that that bitterness moment sets up the brightness and the joy and the sweetness of what comes next. Well, I appreciate your take on that, because when I read, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Ouch. Yeah. (laughs) Well, she has a very high, she has a very high view of God's sovereignty, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. Yeah. All right. I want to talk. Yeah, it's, it's somewhat, yeah. Yeah, uh, Jared, I want to talk about uh, the way the book is laid out, and it's uh, it's really a, a gospel-centered uh, 
series, and we're going to be able to go through this and treat it like a Bible study, and I think it's about an eight-week course. Is that right? That's right. It Good. Is, let's, yes. let's talk about that after the break. Jared C. Wilson is my guest, and the book we're talking about is his new one called Ruth, Redemption for the Broken. We'll take a short break and be right back. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Jared uh, C. Wilson. He's written uh, many books. The one we're chatting about today is his latest one called Ruth, Redemption for the Broken. Now, how did you lay this out? This is uh, like a Bible study over the course of a couple months? Uh, it is. It's uh, essentially an eight session, so it could be spaced out over eight uh, over eight weeks. Um, or, you know, if you met less frequently, it would certainly take longer than that. But it's designed to be conducted uh, generally in, in eight weeks, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Boaz. He, uh, okay. He's obviously a big central character, and he um, has got such noble character. And for a lot of men, he is their go-to hero, one of the go-to heroes in the Bible. Yes. Well, and for good reason, because he um, is one of the few um, men that we see depicted, in particular in the Old Testament, um, for which uh, we, d- we don't see— um, much to criticize him for. He, he doesn't appear to have uh, very many flaws, or uh, if any. He's not depicted uh, in the book. Now, certainly, again, we know he's a sinner um, because he's a human being, uh, but the picture we have of him uh, is a very noble picture. He really sort of stands out and, um, you know, against the backdrop of the Old Testament. And, um, yeah, he. so one thing the book says about him is— um, you know, he says that he, he, he does things, as, you know, as God lives, he makes these commitments. And which is really interesting because it's, it, it can be a figure of speech, you know, to say something like, well, as surely as God lives, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. But theologically, it is um, really, a, uh, you know, what dictates or directs how Boaz lives his life. So as, as a man of means with wealth and lots of uh, servants and the, the owner of, of, of uh, a lot of land— and certainly a lot of prospects uh, as a man who is of marriageable age and that sort of thing. Um, he he lives his life as if God is real and God is alive, <laughs> mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, that's how I kind of take the phrase, as God lives, is it really says something about Boaz, is he, he, he wants the reality of God to um, lay over everything that he, that he says and does. So he's a man who, who conducts his affairs— uh, as if God is true, and that God is judge, and that God is living and active. Mm-hmm. Jared, I'd love for you to walk us through the process, your understanding through what God has revealed to you in your study of Ruth, how Ruth handled herself, where at the advice of her mother-in-law, Naomi, get off your morning clothes, put on your fancy clothes, doll up a little bit, put some perfume on, and now sit at his feet. Yeah. <laughs> how do we? What? How do we? Uh, what do we learn from that? Yeah, there's a lot of speculation um, about that passage. Um, some of it um, may be, uh, on, you know, they may be onto something. Um, I personally do not see anything untoward in in that event. If anything, I see a kind of naivete. Uh, there are some who think euphemistically 
uh, Naomi has sent Ruth to effectively seduce Boaz sexually. I I don't think we have an indication. I never saw from that. the text. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, some scholars say that, but the Bible really doesn't have any problem um, saying when people are engaging in that kind of behavior. So, you know, to veil it here doesn't make much sense. So, um, I think it's a completely chaste encounter. Um, I, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, Ruth is going to try to, you know, seduce Boaz or she's been manipulated by Naomi to try to do that or anything like that. Um, it, it really is a symbolic encounter of essentially asking him to take care of her and to cover her. Um, and then you see the way Boaz looks out for her. So if Boaz had any kind of, um, you know, sexual intention, uh, in his regard for her or his, uh, you know, design for her. Um, he immediately looks after her reputation because she has come in the, uh, at nighttime. And I think and on her part, she's just really naive about this whole thing. And um, and she's trusting that he's not going to take advantage of her, that he, you know, he's not looking to exploit her. He has proven himself to be a man of noble character. And he continues to do that. So he basically um, tries to protect her uh, her reputation or any kind of uh, untoward speculation about um, what's taking place. And um, and you see that in, in all of his regard for her in, in that he wants her to stay close uh, to his workers so that she'll be safe when she's out working and, um, and, and all those sorts of things. But really what the moment is, um, is what the text says, which is that she's going to present herself to him and basically to ask for his coverage, um, his protection, and ultimately for his hand in marriage that he would look kindly upon her and and want to be her kinsman redeemer. Yeah, because uh, Boaz certainly went through the process properly by reaching out to her kinsman redeemer and giving him the first uh, choice, right? Yeah, you know, that. what's interesting is that's one of the, um, the most neglected parts of the whole story, um, and yet it is one of the clearest pictures of kind of the gospel law dynamic that plays in in our life and in 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 the in the dynamic of salvation which is for each of us uh we are in need of redemption yes we we are uh, sinners who fall short of the glory of god and and we need to be rescued we need to be saved and the closest redeemer um to us is the law of god it speaks um you know we we have an obligation to it and it has an obligation to us and yet the law cannot redeem us and, um, you know, so enter now Jesus Christ, who fulfills the law uh, to the T. You know, he, he, he completes it himself, and he becomes the redeemer um, for us that the law cannot be by fulfilling the law himself and then imputing his own righteousness to us, uh, to those who by faith repent of their sin and, and trust in him. And so that, that picture at the end uh, is really a beautiful um, kind of foreshadow of the design that God has uh, for us in salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, the law tells us what to do, but also reveals that we cannot do it perfectly, that w- we need an alien righteousness, that the closest uh, kinsman to us, the tutor, as Paul says in Galatians, that the law is. Um, it is training us, but it's also teaching us to yearn for redemption that cannot come from the law. It has to come from uh, Jesus Christ himself. Yeah, Jared, as we go into the first chapter of Ruth, we find out that Naomi is getting increasingly bitter, and but at the end, she finds great joy through the redemption. There's got to be a bigger lesson for us to learn 
uh, from Naomi here. Yeah, you know, so it really is um, one of those stories that has uh, it, it. It goes from the worst that you would think it could possibly be. Um, I don't know if Naomi can even conceive of her life having any upside. You know, once you get to the point of you've lost your husband, you've lost your sons, uh, your daughters-in-law um, are from a different culture, and um, you know you you are on the verge of uh, of starvation and you're poor. And so for Naomi, the story begins with that sense of bitterness and, you know, how could things possibly get any worse? And then it just gradually builds as the Lord begins to navigate um, Ruth and Naomi both um, through one blessing after another. And then the ending scene, the the book closes uh, with uh, Naomi holding her her grandson there on her lap and uh, she has come full circle. The Lord has uh, fully redeemed her story in that moment, and by virtue of of the lineage that uh, Ruth and Boaz uh, in 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 their marriage are now creating, um, our story bec- uh, comes full circle and it will be fully redeemed because the Messiah comes uh, through their heritage. Mm-hmm. All right, Jared, I want to give my listeners a nice big tease. There are five uh, blessings found in the Book of Ruth, which you convey are part of the book's key messages. Now, we don't have time for five, but we have time for one. Can you share maybe one of those blessings? Yeah, one of the blessings is it teaches us um, how we are to um, love each other, that we would have a sort of a sacrificial um, connection to each other and, and, and want the best for each other. And the blessing really is that this is how um, Christ has loved us. And so because Christ gives us the blessing of himself, we are able then, we are freed and empowered to be able to bless others. Awesome. Now, if you get a hold of this book, you, do, you can do it by yourself. You can do an independent study, can't you? You don't need to be in a group, right? No, yeah, you can certainly do it um, as part of your daily devotions or yep. your, um, yeah, your intentional time as a, as a follower of Christ. Yeah. yeah. So once again, Jared, uh, nice job on Ruth, Redemption uh, redemption for the Broken. This is a, a great study, and you've done, once again, an awesome job. Thank you very much, Bill. And, Thank yeah. you. And Jared, if you ever run into one of those scholar friends of yours that say that Ruth went <laughs> to seduce Boaz, tell them they're not yeah. welcome on my show. Okay, I will tell Save them that me time. for sure. All right, thanks. <laughs> Jared, it, yeah. Jared C. Wilson's been my guest, and his book, Ruth, Redemption for the Broken. We'll take a short break and be right back.
And a big thanks to Jared C. Wilson. Great uh, discussion with him on the book of Ruth. You know, I love my listeners. I learned so much from you. Thank you for reaching out to me on occasion and telling me stories. This is one I have to share because this came in today. And I uh, contacted uh, Sheila, the person who wrote me this, and I said, do I have permission to share this? And she said, oh, yeah, go ahead. So she wrote me this letter, and she said, during one of the roundtable broadcasts last week, you asked the question, what do you do when you have to stand in line? On Friday, I had to go to the county courthouse to change the title on a vehicle. As I rounded the corner with purpose, ready to march right up to that treasurer's window, I was stopped short by a line of about 50 people. Oofta. Well, I guess I could pull out my phone and conduct some busyness. Then I remembered the question and decided, no, that phone shall stay in my pocket. So I I looked around for someone to talk to. The middle-aged gentleman behind me was wearing a camouflage shirt and vest, so I asked if he were a hunter. He pointed to his ears and shook his head. He was unable to hear and couldn't understand what I'd said. Hmm, awkward. Then, drawing on a time of about 50 years ago, when just for fun, I memorized the sign language alphabet. I was very rusty and slow, but he patiently waited for me to sign letters at an agonizingly slow and awkward pace and even helped me relearn some of the hand signs that were slightly off. We had an actual conversation, and before I knew it, we were at the front of the line. I was so engaged that I lost track of where we were, and had to, and he had to motion to me that it was my turn to go to the treasurer's window. Had you not asked the question, I may have missed that rich interaction. So what a great reminder. Let's talk to each other. Not a bad idea to use opportunities to meet people that are around you. And just like Sheila, she had quite an opportunity to have a meaningful conversation with a person who, if he couldn't hear, probably spends more of his day feeling isolated. And, uh, boy, she showed him the uh, the face of Jesus just by caring and showing uh, interest. That was really nice. So thank you, Sheila. Great, uh, great letter. Now, my guest, uh, Hugh Elchel, he's the executive director of the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics and uh, author of How Then Shall We Work? Rediscovering the Biblical Doctrine of Work. Hugh, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Bill. It's great to be with you again. Yeah. How'd you like my story? I love it. I mean, I, it reminded me of uh, uh, one of my friends always says, never pass up an opportunity to have a significant conversation. Yeah, and no, nothing in God's economy is inconsequential, is it? He wastes nothing in our day if we watch very closely. Yeah, but we do have to go to work usually. We get to go to work. It's um, you know, a, a joy for many. It's, and for some people, it feels a little bit like um, um, something that's unpleasant but necessary. Actually, if you look at the statistics, most people believe that way. Last uh, report I read said that over 75 people uh, found no real great significance in work over above making a paycheck. Wow. They just found they found nothing significant. And I would assume with Christians, it's probably not much higher. That's not good news, Hugh. No, it's not. Yeah. And it's, because, it's because we've lost the very purpose of work. I talk to people about this idea of work all the time, and most of the time I hear people tell me, and interestingly enough, this is what I used to believe, so it shouldn't surprise me. They see work as a means to an end, and that end is typically um, 
making enough money to pay the rents and their kids to school, uh, provide you know, physical needs for the family. Um, and that's really the extent of, of what they think is the purpose of work. And when they do that, they miss God's intent for their work. And it's really kind of a shame. Well, let's talk about the word obedience. And, you know, that for most people doesn't always carry a, a positive connotation. Um, and I think, you know, if we're all looking at it from a kid's standpoint, that's not a good word. No, that, that's right. And unfortunately, I think most of us have it so convenient to us when we were kids. You know, eat your vegetables, you know, go brush your teeth, go make your bed, uh, to do all these things that we don't really want to do or didn't like to do. And we know we have to be obedient to our parents. And, and so we got, have this incredibly negative view of obedience. And it's unfortunate because it really, uh, it, it really colors uh, negatively the view of something God really wants to bless us with. In fact, if you read through the scriptures, obedience is the key to God pouring out his blessing upon us. Mm. So when we read scripture, um, we're going to find out that obedience is not only good, but essential. And this is what God calls us to. Absolutely. I mean, the Scripture talks about it over and over again. The problem is we get so confused, I think, in the church today. Um, we, at, On one level, we talk about obedience and, and God's blessing. And this almost kind of develops this mindset that, we have to go do all these good things in order to be blessed. Uh, so we have this mindset that um, it's kind of a quid pro quo type thing, right? And that we, um, we almost earn God's blessing, and we have to prove ourselves to God over and over again. And this is not what the Scripture teaches, and mm-hmm. a very dangerous place to be. In fact, it really leads to this idea that, that um, you know, we, we want to make ourselves right in God's eyes, and, of course, that's self-righteousness, and that's not godly. It's not what God wants from us. But so many people kind of fall into that legalistic trap of trying to live out our lives under the rules and obey all the rules. I call it white-knuckle Christianity. Mm-hmm. And, and, you, and you see a lot of that. People just going to knuckle down and just do it no matter what, right? Yeah. The problem in that, first, it's not biblical, but, but even more importantly— there's no joy. It robs you of all your joy. It, it, it's it's almost, it's worse than duty. It, it's something like you have to do. It really gets back to like having to make your bed or or to uh, brush your teeth or all those. And interestingly enough, your parents have your best interest in mind when they're trying to get you to do those things. It just doesn't seem like that when you're when you're when you're a child. Mm-hmm. But when we grow up, we have to realize that obedience is the key to God's great blessing. But the trick is that we have to learn obedience. Um, Let me step back. The real problem is obedience doesn't reward us for what we do as much as why we do it. Mm -hmm. The problem with obedience, it all gets back to the motivation. And if we're doing it to try to, to, to elicit some kind of reward from God, um, it just doesn't work that way. It gets back, interestingly enough, to your earlier story. Our lives, particularly our response uh, to God's calling in our lives, has to be out of this desire, great deep desire, 
to be in relationship with Christ, right? That's the whole trick. I I heard a very interesting um, um, story the other day from a guy who was talking. He asked this question. I'll ask you and I'll ask your audience. Uh, I got it wrong, so it's it's a pretty hard question. I thought I was a Bible scholar. He said, take the book of John. And he said, what was the first question Jesus asked? In the book of John. And of course, I'm trying to think, well, you've got, you know, you've got kind of the prologue. Of course, Jesus, there's no questions there. And then you've got his baptism. I'm thinking, I can't remember any questions there. And I'm thinking, well, maybe it's the it's the wedding in Cana. I'm trying to think where the questions are, you know. And, and I got it completely wrong. The interesting thing is that it happens in the first chapter. It's just after uh, Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist. And the next day, John the Baptist is there with two of his disciples. And he looks up and he sees Jesus pass by and he says, behold, there goes the Lamb of God. And the two disciples go and begin to follow Jesus. And so they've been following Jesus for a little while down the road, I guess behind him. Jesus turns around and guess what he asks him? He says, what do you want? And, and, you know, that's one of the most profound questions because Jesus has to call for us, you know, what do we want? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we think we want all these things. We think we want a good job or, you know, a nice house or security. I mean, make a list, right? But the disciples answer Jesus with another question. They say, we want to know where you live, which, which on the surface seems like a crazy question. What do you want? They go, we want to know where you live. But see, what they want to do is they want to go. To, to Jesus' house and spend time with him, develop a relationship with him, right? That's what they want. And I tell you, that is the key to the entire Christian life, if we were to understand it. Because obedience, our obedience should flow out of a desire to, um, to do what the one we love wants us to do. You know, think of when you fell in love the first time. Was there anything you wouldn't do for that person? I mean, you would do anything for them. You would look, you kind of go out of your way to do things for them. Our relationship with Christ should elicit even a greater response than that. When we truly understand what he's done for us, our obedience should easily flow out of our desire to um, to please our Savior. And, And once you can get to that place, all this white knuckle stuff goes away because, see, the motivation is completely different. Now you're being obedient to please the one that you love the most, not trying to prove yourself before some kind of God that, that doles out you know, prizes for those who uh, uh, do the most work. And that's, that's a very significant difference that I think has lost a lot of times. Uh, when we talk about this this thing called obedience. So, Hugh, is our view and understanding of obedience rooted in our view and understanding of sin? I think incorrectly so. I think part of it is this idea, like I said, you know, there's on one side is kind of the legalism piece, right, that we want to uh, kind of white-knuckle our way through and, and kind of uh, be self um, rely on ourselves to make sure that we do what we're supposed to do, right? And, and with this false kind of understanding, if we do that, God will reward us. 
But at the other extreme is um, this idea that God is gracious, loving, forgiving, and that, and, and, what, and that's certainly true. But in that, if you take that to an extreme, obedience to God just really doesn't matter, right? And we can almost live our lives however we want to, believing that there's no place for God's law in the Christian life. Uh, um, theologians call that antinomialism. In other words, that the law doesn't matter. And that's not true either. I mean, the, Jesus himself says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the, law, the law is very important. And, and so there's a sense that on one extreme is legalism. At the other extreme is this uh, super or, or hyper grace, sometimes people call it, where it doesn't really matter. We can sin all we want because we know God's going to forgive us. That's just as, as wrong as the kind of the white knuckle uh, your way through through life. And, and really, once again, we have to find that place in the middle. And that place in the middle stems from this understanding that it's our relationship with Christ is, is what drives our obedience. Mm-hmm. It's our love for Him, nothing else. I was just thinking if you have a kind of a low view of sin and you think, well, this isn't that big of a deal, so then the need for obedience wouldn't be that big of a deal. But if you know, you're a devoted follower of Christ and you know what sin is, then you have a, a, higher, a higher understanding of sin, which would call for an immediate higher sense of obedience, I would think. Yeah, it's actually worse than even that, right? Because we will look at something someone else does and say, well, at least I'm not like them, right? I haven't murdered anybody. You know, I haven't committed adultery with anybody. You know, I'm not, I, I, they're sinners. I'm really not that bad. Right? Yeah. And Jesus deals with that, right? He says, if you just look at a woman in lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you, if you get mad at someone, you, you've, you, you've killed them, you know, in, in, in your heart. And, and that, that sin is just as bad, mm-hmm. right? And so I think we have to be very careful and realize, except by the grace of God, any of us are capable of any sin. Um, I mean, I'm just so horrified sometimes when I see what happens, and particularly when I see good people in the church, and we've all experienced this, right, that, you know, pastors that get, go off the ranch and, and commit sin and, and ruin their, their, their careers, ruin their, uh, their families, and, and we see this all the time. And, it, and it's, it's just it's terrible, but we have to realize we're no better than they are except by the grace of God, you know, then uh, we have to always remember that. Yeah. And it, it should cause us to be very humble in the way that we interact with, with people who've fallen into great sin. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, what do we do with those people? Our job is to lead them back to the Savior. And, and in that process, we need to come back to the Savior every day as well. I had a good friend that used to say, you know, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. I think that's really true. I agree. Hugh Welchel is my guest. He's the executive director of the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. We're going to take a little break, and we come back. Lots more with you. obedience have to do with work, huh? Sometimes easier said than done. Hugh Welchel is my guest. He is executive director of the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. 
You know, Hugh, I don't know if you're like me, but I've been watching baseball a little bit last night and will tonight and tomorrow night and Friday night. And it seems like every commercial you go to doesn't really focus on work, focuses on the other side of life that you must have, that you must be thinking about all the time because work is painful. That's right. That's right. Now, it, it is interesting that in our culture today, we think, and, and this is really an old idea. It goes back to the Greeks. But we think work is bad, leisure is good. Right. And what is the, what is the ultimate example of leisure? Well, it's retirement, right? So that you work really hard, you put all your money in the right places, invested it with the right people. So now you don't have to work at all. You can just do whatever you want to do, and you don't have to work at all. Um, the sad thing is that's not in the scripture. Um, I tell people all the time that uh, retirement is not part of God's plan. And, and people are quite shocked when they hear that. Um, we were made to work. And I, I, I'll tell you, I grew up in South Florida. And as a kid, I can remember seeing people come down and retire. Guess what happened to them all? They died. Because you just can't find enough purpose playing golf every day unless that's what God's called you to do for a living. And, and he didn't call me to be a professional golfer. And all you have to do is play a round of golf with me to know that. But um, <laughs> he... he um, he called me to work. He called all those people to work. You know, it says in Genesis 2, 15, that God uh, created Adam, and he put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. And I, I talked to a lot of college kids, um, and, and they have this interesting idea that there's kind of this perfect job out there. When they find it, everything will be okay. And um, I, I tell them no. I said, you know, you, you really don't know what, what, what you're good at to get out and, and other things and try it. And um, there's a sense that we can find the right job, make enough money, and then we don't ever have to work again, right? And well, like I said, that's not a model that's in the Bible. The only thing that even comes close to retirement is that the priest in the Old Testament, their job was just to put up the, 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 the uh, tent of meeting and take it down as they moved around in the, in the wilderness. And once they got to be of a certain age, I think it was 50 years old, maybe 55, they would step out of that position, mainly because they weren't physically able to do the work anymore. And, but they still were required to stay on and teach the young guys how to do it. So, so really, they didn't quit working. They're just Their job changed. And I tell people all the time, particularly people, that are getting close to retirement, they just said, you know, if you've, if you've done well and you've been able to put money away and all that, that's great. So now you don't have to work for money anymore. But God still requires that you work. You need to find things uh, to do that, that he's called you to do, whether it's through volunteer work or through uh, working with organizations where you work and just don't get paid. Um, because you can't find the purpose and significance that everyone is looking for without work. Work is, is, is what God has given us to, to find significance and purpose in our lives. And interestingly enough, like I was saying to young people, what happens with them, they get out in the workforce after two or three years, and they get incredibly disillusioned because it's not like they thought it was going to be. And as a result, they end up coming in, and just working the least amount they can just to get enough to get by. I mean, there's all sorts of, of management books and stuff written about this because it's for managers, it's a, it's a tough 
uh, thing to deal with. But they come in and just, just the least amount they can do to get by. And then they go look for significance and purpose somewhere else, maybe in a relationship or maybe in a hobby or, or you know, pick, pick a list, maybe through travel. Um, but, but they're not going to find it because that's not what uh, God created for us to do. Now, leisure activities, very important. You know, I, I was uh, talking to somebody recently about uh, the importance of everything we do, that everything we do is spiritual. And when I say everything, you have to say everything. Every waking minute you're up, what you're doing is spiritual in God's eyes. And we've got to stay out of this idea that some things are secular and some things are spiritual. So so someone might say, well, you're leisure active. If you're watching a baseball game, that's a secular activity. And I would say for Christians, there is no such thing as secular activity. Everything is spiritual. And the scripture makes that very clear when, when Paul says, whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God, right? So um, I, was, I, was, I was talking to somebody recently, and I said, you know, I'm going to go home tonight and do something very spiritual. And they said, what's that? I said, I'm going to go home and watch the NCAA National Championship football game. This was last year. And they looked at me like I, they just couldn't get their head around that. How could that be spiritual? But if everything is spiritual, everything is spiritual. The baseball game you, you watched last night. For you, that was should have been a spiritual activity. And see, God cares about our leisure activity. He knows we need we need to rest. He knows we need to have a break from our work. He he knows that, right? And I, but I tell you, here's here's the interesting thing. When I started taking that seriously, and I probably watch a lot more bat, bat, uh, football than I do do uh, baseball. I'll be quite honest with you. I'm a huge football fan, uh, particularly college football. But when I started thinking about this seriously. I started thinking, you know, maybe I don't need as much leisure time as I take. Maybe I don't need to watch five football games every Saturday afternoon, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe there's a better way to use some of that time. Not that God would want me to stop all of it because he knows I enjoy it. He knows I need that kind of release uh, and and that um, uh, a break from my work to do that. Uh, And and really, I really kind of, I watch, put it this way. I watch a lot less football than I used to because I begin to realize it's a spiritual activity. And I think that we need to think about that. Everything is spiritual. Everything we do is spiritual. And so we need to see it from that perspective. Uh, and, you know, and particularly any, any, any of our work, obviously, that's true as well. Hugh, don't you find that we've kind of at some level lost the art of small talk and sometimes having watched a game, it's an entrance ramp for conversation starters with people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And Um, yeah, we look for ways to start connecting and you can start by saying, did you, you know, I watched that game last night. Oh, I watched it too. Oh, really? Well, did you know so-and-so, uh, the guy who hit the home run, you know, he pointed his finger upward. Did you know he's a Christian? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, you know, it's, it's interesting because in sports, particularly, uh, in college sports, even more so, it's one of the few places where where, where Christianity is not completely outlawed, right? Right. Uh, and and um, it's interesting how many of these young players and some of the coaches even, you know, will be quite open about their faith. And that, to me, that's just very refreshing. I agree. Uh, just a great, a great, uh, great witness. Uh, I believe, I, you know, I went to the University of Florida, so I'm a I'm a big Gator, and uh, Tim Tebow was, was always been one of my heroes. Uh, you know, that young man just wore his faith on his sleeve, and he didn't care what anybody thought. And I tell you, when you're as good as he was, 
you, you could do that fairly easily. Yeah. But he, he was an interesting guy because um, I knew a lot of people, uh, you know, up in Florida when he was there, and um, he did so many things that never got in the press. One of the interesting things he did, he went around to all the prisons in the state of Florida and preached the gospel in every single prison in the state of Florida uh, while he was um, while he was in college. That's a big job. And, there's a lot of prisons in Florida. <laughs> yeah, a lot of prisoners. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. But, uh, it, you know, he, he, but like I said, God just gave, and this is what he would say, God had given him this platform, and he didn't want to waste it. Right? Yeah. And, you know, you just have to think, how many of us, uh, have been given platforms by God, maybe even little tiny platforms. And, and you know, we had a chance to have a conversation with somebody, and we didn't do it. Yeah. It gets back to what I said earlier, you know, we can never waste the opportunity to have a significant conversation. That's so true, Hugh. There's nothing inconsequential in God's economy. Thank you so much for doing the show. Always great to talk to you. Good to talk to you again. God Thanks. bless you. Yep, you bet. Hugh Welchel has been my guest. He's the executive director of the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. The website is tifwe.org. Tifwe, T-I-F-W-E.org. Take a short break, and hour two is coming up with David Wheaton and then Kent Dunnington all in the next hour. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.